Hi, I'm Jeffrey Allen Schechter, and welcome to Writer's Room Pros, a podcast of conversations with TV and film professionals where we talk about not just their work, but their approach to finding, developing, and ultimately telling stories for a living. On this episode, we welcome Emmy Award-winning director Todd Holland. Todd tells us all about being discovered by Steven Spielberg, his work on The Larry Sanders Show and Malcolm in the Middle, his upcoming Monster High musical, and using emotional imagery to tell a story. And now, Todd Holland. So, Todd, you um, have lived the dream. I have? Yes, you have. Okay. And here's the dream. Okay. You were discovered by Steven Spielberg. It's true. I was. I was in film school in the late 70s, so Spielberg had just sort of exploded mm-hmm. with uh, Jaws, right, in 76. Yeah. And I started film school in 77. Okay. So it, it, it's everybody wanted to be Spielberg. And yeah. then you, know, you hit the 80s and you start hearing stories, people getting discovered by Spielberg, you know, and kind of ushered along. Uh, I, I know a guy, Larry Goodman, who, okay. same story. Like oh. he went to USC, Spielberg saw his, uh, his student film and, you know, and uh, hires him, I forget, what he, oh, I forget what he hired him to do, but yeah, same, same. <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, something. I think get coffee for him. Yeah, no. Exactly. <laughs> no, to direct, right? But what, yeah, yeah. so, what was what was your experience? Uh, my experience was, I always say, the best advice I was never given was go to film school in California because all your friends get jobs. And so uh, it took me three and a half years to finish my 12 and a half minute movie, Chicken Thing, that, um, and while I was finishing it in three and a half years, uh, it, it, all my friends graduated and started to get jobs. And they, you know, I was still slaving away in my edit bay and all that. And they were working as like um, in, a PAs, like pages at NBC. And I was jealous, you know, and the, but one, Danielle, Danielle Black, she became a assist, personal assistant to Kathleen Kennedy at Amblin. And she said, get your film and get your film. And we're picking second season directors for amazing stories. And I had one copy. And it was at the lab. The, the color timer had seen it, and I had seen it, and nobody else on earth had seen it. And I ran and got the one 16-millimeter print that existed, and I took it to Amblin, and Danelle put it in the stack of shorts, which then, you know, Stephen was shooting the color purple at the time, and he had, had a no time for the prior six months. And he suddenly walked in the building and said, had nothing to do, and said, where's Deborah?" Jellin, his development uh, director, and somebody said she's in the screening room watching student shorts, and he went in, and Chicken Thing came up, and he watched it unsolicited, which was remarkable, and said, I want to meet this guy. And so uh, I got a call, which I actually thought was a joke at first, you know, that, uh, you know, I, 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 it just didn't seem real to me. He didn't call, but it was like, um, you know, Steven Spielberg wants to meet you, and so I... I bought new clothes. Uh, it was like a date. I bought all new clothes for this for this meeting and wanted to look smart and sophisticated. And I uh, went over and met with him and he was lovely. And he eventually said, do you write? And I said, yes, I do. And I handed him a, th- a half hour script that I'd written. And he, he said to me very, very pointedly, he says, I'll read this tonight. And I went, oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. And then he repeated it, which was weird to me. He says, no, I'll read this tonight. And what I didn't realize, because I wasn't in Hollywood yet, was that he wasn't going to have someone else read it. He was trying to tell me I, this is important enough to him that Steven Spielberg himself was going to read these words. But I, I didn't understand what that meant because I was just a person. <laughs> you know. And so uh, then he called back and he said, well, we have we – ha- it was a Halloween story. We have a Halloween story. Do you have anything else? And I said, yes, I do. And I had an idea. And I wrote it that weekend. <laughs> And I turned it on Monday, and that's the thing they bought that became my first um, 
thing I ever directed. I wrote and directed. And then, of course, the production, the, the line producer, um, the producer, David, um, oh, crap, crap, David, um, I forgot his name now. But he then ripped it apart, saying it was completely unproducible. And I had to utterly reconceive it. It was my first real challenge as a writer to find a way to achieve the same intention with a completely new device. Um, and But I ended up doing that, and we ended up shooting it, and it was... The first thing I ever did. Stephen um, was the still... second season of uh, a Amazing Stories. second season Stories. of Amazing Stories, yeah. Right. Well, uh, which uh, episode was that? It was What's Welcome it to My Nightmare. Okay. It was the, the, the device had been this sort of the original device had been this sort of preternatural movie theater that was sort of a sentient being it was alive and so the kid gets trapped in this movie theater and they get sucked into the screen it was all very meta and all very obvious and so then I had to figure out well what was I dealing with I was dealing with a sort of like an irresistible uh, force that you has the an intractable force. And I said, well, what, what else is an intractable force? And I realized a movie plot, a movie plot that already exists and a kid who loves the movies and wishes life could be like a movie. And he ends up making that wish upon a shooting star as one does in a short, amazing stories. And why can't life be as good as a movie, which is something I always thought in growing up always. And except he's not, be careful what you wish for. He steps in the movie psycho. And he suddenly finds himself dressed in Janet Lee's dress. And he realizes he's in a movie he's not going to survive. You know, and that's the whole... And I realize a, a movie plot that you know the outcome of becomes an irresistible force that you have to fight against them. Wait, so you, so you came up with this like like on a Friday or something and, and wrote this, it over the weekend? Or did, was this like I, one of those things in your idea? I, I, you know, I, as I recall, it was it was an idea I had for this. And it was fast. It was like, to me, it was like, you know, 25 pages or something. It wasn't that long, you know. Um, uh, and I wrote it over the weekend. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wrote it on that with my dot matrix printer, tearing these things <laughs> off the sides, you know. Um, I saw Damn, a couple how old are you? <laughs> I'm slightly, I'm just slightly less old than you. Yes, we've established uh, that. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, so anyways, um, Stephen um, was very, very supportive. I mean, you know, once he tells you you have a job, like literally I had a job, a job offer from Steven Spielberg and I had nothing else. I had no agent. I had no manager. I had no nothing. Were you still in school or had you graduated? I, I, this was UCLA, right? I was in graduate school. And at that point I had eight credits to go. And to this day, I will say I still have eight credits to go. <laughs> <laughs> for my master's. Um, I didn't realize you had to complete your master's within a certain time frame. Or I, I've tried to get my master's now and I have to reapply to UCLA from scratch. There's no like, after like 30 years, you can't just pick it up and pay for the last eight units. So I, I have opted not to do that yet. Um, I don't care that much, I guess. Um, I no think there's a really good online college. Uh, yeah, yeah, Columbia. Let's <laughs> say like Arizona, yeah. Piedmont or something. You can get your degree, I think, I can, in two months. I can do that. Which, uh, okay. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no one's ever asked to see my my master's in film and television. Um, so anyways, um, I started with Steven uh, there. And he honestly, he... He was supportive. I came, he brought me in to pitch on um, Small Soldiers. His sister had written a draft of that. I wrote, I was hired to write a draft of one of many, many people who wrote a draft of Gremlins 2. Um, I'm in an elite club of people who uh, wrote, who wrote like 20, I think there were like 26 writers wrote drafts of Gremlins 2. And Stephen ended up getting what he exactly what he wanted, which is not what I thought was most interesting. Um, and so I love Gremlins as a movie. Um, 
anyways, and so uh, he's been a supporter throughout my career, and I'm grateful. But he wasn't really wasn't on set. I've never seen him direct. I've never been on set with him. Um, it, I didn't press the invitation, and I never offered it. And so, you know, he came on set once during the shoot. Um, and by then, they were kind of used to him showing up in amazing stories, and he would breeze in, change the lens, and leave. And then he, they would change the lens back after he left and keep moving. You know, that's sort of how it worked. Did, does he? Does he know? Uh, I have no idea what he knows. I'm okay. assuming he doesn't. Know. All right. Okay. Yeah. This will be exciting. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna email him. <laughs> good, say, good. Did you know what was going on behind your back on Amazing? I, I did have I did have one um, thing about him. He had a very specific idea about my episode, my first Amazing Stories, and and he really was adamant that it should be cut a certain way. And I was ex trying to explain why that wasn't the best way to do it. And finally, I was allowed to create two different, and this is offline cuts, like these videotape you know, things. Right. We created two offline cuts of the show in, with the ending that he wanted. I don't remember what it was anymore, quite frankly. And the ending that I'd written, which I thought had cut, turned out well, and he finally relented and let me have my ending. Wow. That's kind so of, that was that's, nice. Yeah. That, well, uh, Steven Spielberg, it's like he can afford to throw, throw yeah. me a bone. He doesn't always, though. <laughs> he doesn't always. I had, I had lunch um, with uh, John Badham. Oh, yeah. And John Badham... Uh, who uh, we're going to get for, uh, for to do an episode yeah, also, right? A nice guy. The nicest guy. He directed uh, Saturday Night Fever and yeah. 100 million War games. things. War games, right. Yeah. Um, and he says that he discovered Steven Spielberg. Oh. Uh, that he was working... What was he working on? i got to remember the story. Anyway, the same, but same thing. Spielberg did his film at USC and Batam saw it and said... He was working on some... Oh, it was Night Gallery. That's what it was. Oh, Batam was working on oh, Night yeah. Gallery and saw Spielberg's film, his USC senior film and said, oh, you know, and recommended him. And that's how Spielberg. Wow, that's amazing. I've it. never heard that. Yeah. So it's, it's, is that it's, well known? I don't know. It's well known now. We may cut it out so bad we can tell the story again. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I know. But anyway, it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, so it feels like this, this it, it's, it's interesting to, you know, to actually for me to know two people, one who discovered Steven Spielberg and somebody who was discovered by Steven Spielberg. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's me but, who's been ignored by Steven Spielberg. But that's part of the chain. That is really the chain. At this part in my career where I'm still younger than you, um, I, you know, you start giving back. You start finding filmmakers who, who you go, that's, that reminds me of me that, or that person has a great eye and that person, you know, and. I've been very active at that at the Guild and very active in, I was co-chair of diversity uh, for the D DGA for six, seven years and mm -hmm. created a whole program to bring up diverse and female, uh, DG it's all internal DGA, but D bring up DGA yeah. members who want to be episodic television directors. And we created a program of education and mentorship because it, it takes that lift. You need, I mean, honestly, as I started saying, when I had Steven Spielberg uh, Josh, Bill, Josh, Steven Spielberg's job offer and nothing else. I was I started cold calling agencies and going, "Hi, my name is Todd Holland. I'm a film student at UCLA, and Steven Spielberg had offered me a job writing and directing for Amazing Stories. Would you like to see my student film?" And it was like, "Yes," you know. It was of course it was yes. I mean, I and I had my pick of any agency I wanted. I was courted, and it was very confusing. Um, but you know, it was that what everyone's missing is is that sense of heat to move to the next level. You know, if you don't have that, and Stephen gave me that in that moment. And then, of course, I famously was meeting David Hoberman at Disney during that first three weeks or something of my Hollywood introduction. And I bumped into Jeffrey Katzenberg in the hallway, and he just looked at me without even saying hello and said, oh, so you're the flavor of the week, and moved on. <laughs> was he, was he saw you with Hoberman? Or? Yeah, yeah. I didn't meet with Dave, uh, Jeffrey. I was just there in the building, you know. So it's just funny. It's just like 
It's just a funny, Hollywood's such a funny business. This show is brought to you by Showrunner Industries, makers of Writers Room Pro. For more about the app and this show, make sure to check us out at writersroompro.com and follow us on Instagram at writersroompro. Now, back to the show. What percentage of stuff that you direct do you also write? Very little, very Very little. little. That's why more like back in the day. It it was a no. I wrote features that nobody made, and then I wrote, uh, I rewrote because I did the first things were amazing stories, which I wrote the first one. Then I they hired me to rewrite the second one, and then I got a Tales from the Crypt, and they said rewrite this and direct it. Mm -hmm. And so I was more in that ballpark, and then. I got into, I don't know what, I got into comedy, I guess. And comedy is not that kind of thing. You know what I mean? Once mm-hmm. you once I got out of genre, because I was in sort of, oh, I did a Vietnam War story. So I got to rewrite that and direct it, um, which was an HBO series. Um, so and once you get into comedy, it's there's a writer's room and there's sort of this power dynamic. And, and that's a whole right. different animal. And I think I, I got it in that track. Yeah, it's interesting. I was uh, I read an uh, interview with Ted Danson, you know, who... God, Mr. Love, Mayor. Love Ted Danson. <coughs> the nicest guy. The nicest guy you'll ever meet. Everything you hope is true. Everything <laughs> nice you hope is true about Ted Danson is absolutely true. Nice, nice. That Sweet. was not the what the interview was about, <laughs> about how nice he was. But he was saying, which I thought was really interesting, I never heard anybody express it this way, um, that he'll he'll take a break from doing comedy and do drama yeah. because he needs a break from comedy. Not because he doesn't like being funny, but because comedy is so exhausting to do. Yeah. Whereas, like he was saying, I think in the interview, where it's like drama, like you could show up like drunk and in a bad mood and like, or hungover and the camera go, you know, you're looking at you and they go, oh, this is interesting what's going on. Yeah, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, whereas comedy, it's like, you know, it's, you're hitting the, you got to hit your, your marks. It's not about the camera can move in at a leisurely sure. pace. It's, it's much more like an athletic event, I think he said. Yeah, it's about, I always, I, for years, you got, you know, comedy got so little respect at the DGA that I would say comedy is harder than drama because the comedy that I like and comedy's changed a lot in the last 10, five to 10 years. Um, but I like stuff that has emotional truth. So it's got to be dramatic. It's called comes from my time at the Larry Sanders show, but it has to be emotionally true and it has to be funny. So drama sort of has to be emotionally true and that, then that's all you got to do. Right. You know, I, I don't do or relate to or watch things that are just jokey, 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 you know, just, mm-hmm. I don't understand that. Right. I forget which, uh, which season it was, um, but it was for, from Larry Sanders show, which, uh, you know, we should talk about that at some point because, yeah. you know, you directed a gajillion episode. You won two Emmys for Larry Sanders? I one won Emmy? one Emmy. Oh, it was two, nominated two for, for Malcolm in the middle. Two for Malcolm. was nominated for like six Emmys for really? Larry Sanders, something like that. Crazy number of Emmys. We never won because in the beginning, what your young mm. reader, young listeners may not know is that um, Cable was not eligible for the Emmy at first. Right. That's why they created, Oh, I didn't know that. That's why they created uh, the Cable Ace Award. Right. Which the Ace Award also it had to be the Cable Ace Award because there is an Ace Award for editing. Um, so it was the Cable Ace. And then eventually uh, Emmys allowed uh, the Emmys allowed uh, Cable in. And now, of course, it decimates the Emmys. But for a while, every be nominated, I'd lose to a Frasier. Ep- we'd lose to a Frasier episode mm-hmm. or Mad About You. It went on and on at the DGA Awards too. Right. Lose every time. I didn't oh. win it. Never won a DGA Award for Larry Sanders. I won it for Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so right. Interesting. The um, I was going to say the I, I forget which season it was, but uh, like the um, I don't know if it was the poster or the cover of the DVDs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know the DVD 
yeah. um, season yeah. covers. And it, it was this, you know, shot of Gary Shandling um, where you can't even see his face. With his head in his hands? Yeah. yeah that's, his. that's like the obvious. Yeah. Right. No, it's, it's obvious, but you go, you know, instead of the... You know, like oh, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. the big smiley yeah. faces into the camera. It's like this is what—that's the show. It's this like this is the show, yeah. Yeah, right. So it life. brings that drama. You know, it brings that the uh, you know the sort of that element of drama in. But get, well, I mean, I learned it from. I, I honestly, I I never ever thought of myself as a comedy person ever. But I was always that kid who would say the thing that was so obvious in the room that nobody else would say both to relieve tension in a dysfunctional family, but also to make, and I, I got the laugh, you know what I mean? And so I would be kind of shocking because I was like naming the, the, the elephant in the room. But so I just got comfortable with that kind of humor because it was part of my life, you know? And so when my agent called and said, what do you think of, of Gary Shandling? I said, oh, I like your show. And it was it's Gary Shandling show. I said, I think it's smart. It's funny. I don't watch it much, but I liked it, you know? And so then I saw a couple episodes of the Larry Sanders show that had, wasn't, hadn't aired yet. And I was like, oh yeah, I, I get this. It's, it's dark enough that I get it. You know, it wasn't to me a comedy. And then I learned from Gary, who's, who was a genius, honestly, he's a great genius, not an easy man to work for, but he was a genius. He, we'd come in with these scenes and we would, run them and if it didn't make dramatic sense to Gary everything stopped mm -hmm. and we would sit down and figure out what does Larry want what does Artie want what does Hank want why are they entering the room what are they leaving with we'd figure all we intellectualize all of that and then they would take all that information back to the writer's room and the genius of the Larry Sanders show was they could make that hilarious you know, they can make all those intentions that were all now true and correct. They, and the writers. The writers, yeah. I don't know who, how much of that Gary wrote. I, uh, I think relatively little, I think. I think it was a lot of super brilliant writers that got fired in a revolving door kind of scenario. Um, but uh, Gary understood what was going to be real and deep and meaningful about it and then he and he knew when it was funny he certainly knew when it was funny he could turn it that way so he had a lot yeah you know, he had a lot of input but anyways i learned to chase emotional truth on that show mm -hmm. in comedy right well he was also very um conceptual i mean like 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 bigger like 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 yeah. the gary shandling show yeah. you know, i don't know if that was the first really meta yeah show it was, yeah. probably was right where the yeah. theme song is it's the gary shandling yeah. show yeah. you know where it's like it was just it's true it's gary's it's show like wandavision yeah right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like or the first wandavision right 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 yeah, yeah so uh yeah so i always i remember you know as a you know younger younger adult um Young, oh, yeah. you know, older than you yeah, still. Of course, yeah. But as a young adult watching the Gary Shandler show and just thinking like, you know, what planet did this come from? It's like he's blowing apart the fourth wall. It's like... Yeah, it hadn't been done. And he was, he was good at that. I mean, he did that twice in his career, which is, you know, I heard one of your podcasts was saying, uh, it was Jeff Astroff. Mm -hmm. everybody, everybody has one good show. Gary had two. Right. Which is hard to do. Right. You know, um, so uh, yeah, they're both really interesting. And Larry Sanders was a—I call it my Playhouse ninety days. It was like directing with a whip and a chair, because we would—we had a multicam rehearsal week, 
with table reads in the Monday. And then we had like literally the, the writers run through, the studio run through, the network run through. And then we shot Thursday and Friday, 17 pages, two days in a row. Because we were th three walls, in, uh, three cameras in a four wall set. Mm -hmm. So it was this kind of shooting style that we kind of invented that then went off to become a million other shows like... Um, Immediately it was Arliss, and then it was um, uh, what was the the sports night, sports center, sports night, sports oh, night. Oh yeah, with um, yeah, and then it became Larry David and Ricky Gervais told Gary and I at the Emmys one time that he just took his entire um, style, all his shooting ideas from the Larry Sanders show. He took everything from the Larry Sanders show. He was very complimentary. That's nice. Did yeah. you did did you work on The Office? Uh, I did not know. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, Ricky Gervais. Yeah, yeah. I guess you're not British, so. No, and I didn't, um, I never got The Office, honestly. It, was, <laughs> it, it wasn't dark. It wasn't dark. And I didn't ever understand the Steve Carell character. I just didn't, I didn't understand. I didn't get it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that show will never amount to anything. So. And I, was, I was at Wayne's World, and I said, I don't get this. Mm -hmm. And I turned it down, and then they, somebody, somebody, Penelope, right? Penelope yeah, Spheres. She directed it, and she, I said, I, I saw the movie, and went, oh, she totally got it. And I literally knew that's, I just didn't get it. That has to happen a lot. I mean, it's, I know it's happened to me, where it's like you, you read something, and you go, you know, I don't get it. I don't see it. Yeah, it's like your agent. Yeah. It's like there's all these taste filters that change the yeah, destiny but, of... But it's almost like, why? Why isn't it more empirical? You know, it's like, I guess, I don't know. I guess I, it's, it's a silly, it's a silly like, question, I guess. Yeah, but, it's based on your DNA, your cultural DNA, uh, your entertainment DNA, basically. I know. What, in a, what makes you laugh? What makes you... Like, I, my husband loves comedy and he watches it all the time and i some shows make him just breathless he's gasping wheezing there's that one wipeout or well, he's the, an easy laugh the, anyway. the original japanese wipeout the one that the, the japanese iteration of that i would hear him across our house just like gasping oh you're watching that japanese show again aren't you because <laughs> you know? he just makes him and i don't laugh like that i tell you know I me mean, I, I in all my comedy shows i tell people i don't i don't laugh so don't I, in fact, I was doing an episode of Friends, my one and only episode of Friends, and the director ahead of me, I shadowed in rehearsal, and he was laughing like a hyena, like at everything. And I went to him, I said, I, I just, I, if I need to laugh like that, I, I'm the wrong person. Like I was in a panic because mm -hmm. I don't do that. I don't know how to fake laugh. Linwood Boomer from Malcolm, he gave me a, he made all the writers laugh in casting. And I was given the pass because I said, I just don't do it. It sounds fake. It's just, I just can't do it. Right. But you know why they do it, right? Oh, just, the directors? Uh, to, to encourage the actors to make choices? Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> to, I heard I heard that because I, I, I saw, the first time I ever saw a director do that was you know, a while ago. It was on a Canadian show when I was up in Canada. Yeah. And... Um, and they were going to put a laugh track in afterwards, right? So, uh, oh, they're right, building okay. a pause, right? So they're building a pause, but they're also they're cueing the sound team to know where the laughs should go. And he oh. would modulate, you know, you know what kind of laugh he was doing um, based on how big of a laugh he wanted in the soundtrack. I see. Right. So there was a it was, no one trained me in that. I had no training. It was apparently, and I, I said, "Is this comedy?" So yeah, yeah. I came straight out of the Larry Sanders show into Friends. And so we had a similar rehearsal process. Right. So I, But I knew nothing about the multicam form right. when I did yeah. that episode. And Friends Friends shot in front of a live audience? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I didn't... But some directors just do that. I mean, Jim Burroughs is famous for having a, a big booming laugh that everyone waits to hear. But 
I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to use my laugh as a tool. Mm -hmm. I, it's just genuine. And yeah. you have to surprise me. Yeah. Gary would always try to stand up on me. And I would just say, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> and he would just always... No, here's the joke. Was it because Here. you were the challenge? It's like, yeah, I, I guess can get so. Todd to laugh. I go, please. And, it, and he would only make me laugh when there was a built-in surprise. Because I have this... I'm a curmudgeon. And so if I go, oh my God, I feel the I feel the structure of this joke. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a cerebral curmudgeon. I feel the structure. I know how this joke is built. I can feel the punchline coming and they want me to laugh. So you have to completely subvert my, my resistance. Right. So this is the one joke I remember from Gary. That's just so dumb. But what do the Pope and a Christmas tree have in common? What? They both have balls as ornaments. <laughs> That made me laugh. That made me laugh because I did not see it coming. I remember the the one the one Gary Shandling joke oh, I remember oh my God. was was is, is I think it was at the end of the Gary Shandling show yeah. where he's like talking to camera like yeah. at the end and he's looking into the camera and he's going he goes well I, I've you know I had a date last night with uh, with uh, Miss Georgia all right it's the former Miss Georgia all right it's George Foreman. <laughs> And I just, I remember watching it going, that's just so brilliant. Yeah. And while also being screamingly obvious. Yeah, yeah. It's like, once you get Miss Georgia and former Miss Georgia, you could, yeah. you know, you're just waiting for, okay, yeah. what's the, what's the third shooter drop? He always had that, when he had this famous run that he would go, I, I, I took my dog to the vet and I, I told the vet, I said, my dog's penis tastes bitter. Is that normal? <laughs> <laughs> he had one of his jokes, <laughs> and you don't see that coming, you know. Right, right. <laughs> you go, but well, you know, anyways, I, we, we digress. I feel I feel very uh, very confident thinking that this is the only podcast that will be released the week that we release it that has a bitter penis joke. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sally Richardson Whitfield, and I am the executive producer of the Gilded Age and one of the directors. And you are listening to the Writers Room Pros Podcast. When does Monster High air? Monster Air, Monster High comes out day and date on Nickelodeon and Paramount Plus on October sixth. Oh, okay. You know, so we have some time, but, but we are, we're doing. Well, we're not going to time the release of this podcast for <laughs> that. We, we try to do that sometimes. It's like you know. no, no, no. It's a long time. We have um, very low budget, and so none of the it's got like over three hundred visual effect shots, and and none of it was put in motion until Picture Lock. So it was like, it's the way you save money, right? Right, and you right. shot up north. You shot we in shot in Vancouver, yeah. Vancouver, okay. Yeah. yeah. Was that good? Good experience? Oh, I had the best time. Um, I hear I, that a lot from people who shoot up there. I, well, for one thing, I love, I'm not a sunshine person. I am. The, I think I honestly have the rare, like 10% of people have inverse seasonal affected disorder. <laughs> I think I have that. Like blue skies bum me out. <laughs> like I'm not built for California. I hate being hot. It rained. Like, You're a depressing person. I've never oh, been no, so depressed. <laughs> blue, See, skies, and that's the opposite. blue skies bum you out. Blue skies bum me out. My husband says I'm the only person that looks up in Hawaii and goes, oh, God, it's clear again today. You know, I'm like. Another uh, day in paradise. Day. Ugh. You know, and I like to be in Hawaii when it's raining and storming. And, um, but, uh, yeah. Um, and, like, in November, it was, like, a super wet November. It rained, like, 27 days in November. And I was bummed on the three days it didn't rain. You know, I mean, um, I but you were shooting inside. Yeah, well, I was, and then I was a little terrified when we. I realized we had to shoot outside a couple of times. We had four exterior days, right. and everyone was in peril. Every one of them was in peril. It was so wet in the fall. Um, I had a great time. I realized very late in my career, my first TV movie, it might be the perfect form for me. 
features have always been these snake pits, you know, where um, I never, there's there's too much time. It's like, the way I've always thought of it was you have two hours, you have two hours of material and you have like a year for all the nervous Nellies to just wring their hands to death over that, over those 110 pages, right? So you're just constantly defending the writing and constantly defending the intention and the and the creative goals. And it's just exhausting. And I that I have to direct and I don't want to do that while I'm directing. You know, and television, you have like, you know, you're shooting a half hour in five days or a pilot in maybe eight and maybe you get more if it's a one hour like Stitchers. But people kind of stay out of your way because the train is moving so fast that they know <coughs> if they step in front of it in any way, it's going to cost money. So there's this great adrenaline in television that really suited me and it gave me, believe it or not, I thought I had more autonomy as an auteur in television in network television that I actually had in the features I did. And then came Monster High, where it is this crazy, ambitious, low-budget uh, uh, dream, fever dream that Nickelodeon has. And there, it was just, they they needed someone to be in charge of it. And, and I also, you, you have to align with the brand. It's the hardest part because there's the big IP surrounding it. And it's Mattel is driving the original this original reboot and reconceiving all the characters based on their intentions with their toys. But once you get that figured out, like nobody knew how to turn this cartoon into a live action thing and nobody stood in the way. <laughs> so I got all of it. I got this big canvas and as long as you could do it for no money, uh, and we did, Fred Andrews, who designed Stitchers, you know, was a production designer, uh, Fred worked miracles, and I knew he would, which is why he's the only American that I fought, 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 and fought to get up to Canada, because I knew I needed somebody who could find the fever dream in it and make it beautiful and original in a way and not just some sort of knockoff of something because mm -hmm. we'd have them. And, you know, of course, there's the um, Adams Family, the movie version of this, but that cost $80 million and we didn't have that. Right. We had 12 and a half, you know, and it's a musical. And, you know, basically I said, it's a monster world in a month. It's monster, char monster characters in a monster world and they sing and dance. It's like Star Wars. Every prop is custom. Every single extra has to go through a design process. They have to have a conceived look with hair, makeup, wardrobe. I mean, you literally, we had to call out exactly how many extras were in everything, and it was small. I mean, you, if you watch people, the same people are going by all the time. <laughs> look, werewolf, werewolf, yeah. Oh, werewolf. Yeah. yeah, so anyways. But I had a great, great time. I had a great crew. Um, the cast was amazing. I love young casts. I love young casts. I think they're so joyful and they're so much fun to work with. And it was my first musical. So that was super thrilling. Was it potentially like a, a backdoor pilot or was it? Specific? No, no, it's no, a, just, just they're a trying to build a franchise. Okay. You know, we're, 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 I've been brought in to now write, co-write story on Monster High 2. Oh, very nice. So we're starting work on the sequel, just the story work and uh, trying to make it as, Tight and clean is the first one. The first one worked out really well. So who wrote the first one? Uh, it's the the Eddies rewrote the they the Eddies and I Matt Eddie and Billy Eddie. We mm -hmm. did the rewrite for they did the rewrite and we but we had to brainstorm. We had to do two rewrites in a very short amount of time. One was big and conceptual to get a green light, and the next one was to get the budget because it was always like we don't have the money 
to do all the obvious things you think you would do. The big third act set piece. We got to be smarter. So my I invented this branded tagline that says, we're going to win in the small. <laughs> And I said that on the back, the back of the writer's room. I said that to every single person I met. We're going to win in the small because we did not have the money. So we got to win on emotion. We got to win on character. We got to win on, on small turns that are really deeply felt and, and they're joyful and suspenseful. And, and we managed to do it. We managed to do it. You kept, you have to keep the number of characters. There's no extraneous characters in the frame. You just can't afford it. Both as a writer and a director, like what's your, what's your way into story? I have this problem where I, I go right to um, small emotional moments. Like I see emotional imagery and then I'm sort of backing my way out of the room. I'm way up close to this character in this moment and I have to back my way out of the room to figure out how I got there and how do we, is this worth working to get there? Like I am detail backing up to concept and it's, or I have a concept and I have, you know, it's, it's hard. I've, I've, I've tried to find that balance, but I'm, I always see an emotional image of different, different, a series of them, you know what I mean? And I'm trying to figure out if they're important or if I believe they're important, how do I get to them? You know, you're very different. You're very cerebral. Wow. That's why, yeah, you have yeah. your uh, unity of opposites and it's, <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing system, yeah. you know, no, I'm but very, I, I'm very conceptual. And then yeah. I, I, then I find my way into the, the smaller moments. Yeah, see, I am. You and yeah. I work completely opposite, which is weird that we actually work well together. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, exactly. But it also makes sense as a director. I'm going to go for these in the emotional right. tr moments, and emotional truth, and turns, and yeah. um, you know, then you struggle to find the theme. Yeah, and you know that 28 percent of TV of TV right now is streaming. 28 percent is broadcast, and like 35 percent is basic cable still, which is all amazing to me because my experience is that all of it's streaming, <laughs> like none of it's broadcast. That's how I, that's my how I live, but um, so it's amazing. But but streaming has this ability to parse out story in this. I, it's just a crazy problem. Is I love that the pilot doesn't have to like answer all the questions and set up the whole world. I've done that so many times, and it's exhausting. And it's never a great episode, you know. Right. Um, so I love that streaming can. They know they have ten episodes typically. I think you know, and so they can tell they can break that story across and across multiple frames, basically. Um, um, but I also remember seeing like, uh, my expectations are so different. I saw the poster for King Arthur. I thought, oh my God, great. I love that story. I watched that show. And then I found that it was a movie and I went, oh, well, that's going to be terrible because you know, suddenly it's going to be this legendary style action movie with $10 billion of special effects and very little story, very little emotional story because you can't fit all that into two hours. Is it, you're talking about the guy Richie? Yeah. Yeah. But you can't fit all that into two hours. So right. when I thought it was a, a Netflix show or something, I was super excited because I said, oh, I'd love to learn more about, I'd love to not learn, but I mean, I'd love to just experience that story told over a big canvas. It's kind of like goes back to Cheers. It goes back to network television, ironically, because it's like I always remember the day I finally said in my brain the lyrics to Cheers. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Uh -huh. I go, oh, that's that's network television. That's why CBS is still such a powerhouse. Uh -huh. People want to go to the familiar. They want to walk into a murder scene where everybody knows their name. <laughs> <laughs> on CBS. Um, but, you know, that's, so that really affected how I built pilots 
from then on because I realized, oh, that's what we're doing. We're creating this welcoming space that whatever it is, it's a it's got a it's a welcoming energy for comedy, yeah, obviously. And then it, when there's a consistency to it, and there's a you know people know what they're getting. It's a little Starbucksy, you know. You're getting mm-hmm. this very clear product. Um, so there's, you're fulfilling an expectation. And as I say with all TV directors, our jobs is to when you do episodes, our jobs is to emulate and elevate. So you're always trying to raise the bar on the series, but you need to conform. Right. Well, that's but that's the that's part of the joy of, of episodic television is that you're returning to this, uh, to the familiar, but it's, but it, there's a reward. I mean, it's a Stitcher's line, isn't it? Return to the familiar. Wait, is no. that a Stitcher's line? Oh, it, oh, it's, from, every, it's, it's from, not everything's script. about Stitcher's. It's from some script. I, I swear to God, return to the familiar. Okay. okay. Oh, I don't go remember. Yeah. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, anyway. But, um, yeah, it's, it, you, but you get rewarded for, um, like in your brain, it's like, it's like comfort food. Right, you know, like there's a there's a reason why macaroni and cheese, you know, is one of the most popular foods in the world. Well, as I always say, um, fettuccine comedy to me is like fettuccine alfredo. It's best served as a side dish. <laughs> you <laughs> are a curmudgeon. That, that's my thing. I do. Nobody wants a full plate of fettuccine alfredo. It's too much. I kind of do. Uh, I don't. <laughs> I want horror comedy, you want- drama comedy. I want sci-fi comedy. I want. I like humor because I also uh, I also intolerant of humorlessness because I think it's just like the Tony Scott problem. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Where the, they have no sense of humor at all, and I just don't relate to it. I'm not macho in that in any way. And so so when people behave humorlessly, it just seems so unnatural to me and I couldn't do those shows or like really dark dark supernatural things that are humorless I just don't they're not I don't relate to them this from the guy whose dream is to have a side dish of you know linguine Alfredo during a thunderstorm yes exactly (laughs) that's like that's your like your perfect afternoon what's better than scary fun that's why Monster High was so exciting to me what is better than scary fun kids there's a tornado outside let's let's make some fettuccine Alfredo and go eat it (laughs) I realize I have a very high tolerance for emotional suspense and that my children did not inherit which is really interesting they when something gets particularly if a character is about to embarrass themselves or they've lied and they're they're about to be caught they'll leave the room <laughs> like oh wait the writers created this so we would be anxious for this hero why get back in this room you know it's like that. i go don't don't you leave this room you know somebody worked hard to make this <laughs> I, I live i live for that i live for the breathless sense of anticipation um, when something terrible might happen to somebody I care about. Right. I mean, this is one of the things I liked about Malcolm in the Middle is like every, every you know, like everybody always felt like they were on the edge of something yeah. horrible happening to yeah, them, true. but in a you know, but in a in an environment where you knew it was safe. It's like the yeah. roller coaster. It's like okay, I'm probably not going to die on the roller coaster, yeah. but it's really scary. Well, it's kind of it's fun. We just started watching that with the kids. We we hadn't done it, and they asked to watch it, so we sat down and started watching Malcolm together. And they loved it, which is very rewarding. But it's kind of like how we grew up. Like most people, we knew survived their childhood. <laughs> so you did a lot of stupid shit, but you got through it, you right. know. And that's what Malcolm was like for me. And people always asked if we 
made it consciously retro and we're like, no, we just all, I guess, modeled it after our own childhoods. And so visually it was modeled after, you know, Linwood's and mine. And, and, and so, no, it just ended up being a, a simpler version of, you know, there are no phones, no cell phones and right. just did, we weren't written in. Did you write the, direct the pilot? I did. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. I, it's, it's, there are a couple of, um, uh, this, please believe me, this is not me, you know, sucking up to you or pandering. Um, and I think I've probably told this to you already before that um, the there are a couple of couple of scripts like TV and um, you know and film that I looked at and go it was just absolutely perfect like like absolutely you you I would have to be a bigger curmudgeon than you which is we know is going to be impossible That's hard. you know in order to um, find something wrong with it so like the original Toy Story well pretty much all the Toy Stories. Are, are like that and um, the Chuckles Bites the Dust oh, yeah, episode yeah, yeah, of yeah, Mary yeah. Tyler Moore show yeah, yeah. like another like perfect yeah. you know di- from writing to directing there's a, an episode of Malcolm which which I had seen and going oh my god this is absolutely it's a, the perfect conceptually Bowling? how he's directing no. I forget the name of the episode and then I discovered uh, I'll, I'll tell you, but I discovered afterwards that that you directed it and somebody else that I know uh, uh, Globerman you know, oh, okay, which one, which one was it? It was the one where um, there it's the school fair oh, yeah, is going yeah. on, mm-hmm. and like the conceptual stuff. There is the the older. I'm blanking on the characters' names. We just watched it. Yeah, yeah but there's the older brother who he's having a, a fast high yes, speed romance. High speed romance. Yeah. He, meet, he meets a girl. Yeah. He meets a girl. It's like it's it's like they go through the honeymoon phase. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, they it's the cute meet the honeymoon phase, yeah. and then the breakup all yeah, within yeah, like yeah, yeah. an hour at this like yeah, outdoor yeah. fair. But it was brilliant. That part was conceptually brilliant because of the whole, the you hit all the tropes yeah, yeah, yeah. of yeah. you know of cute meat yeah. and our relationship's a little bit in trouble and I think we're gonna break up now yeah. In it, yeah. with all we've meant to each other. Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, like all those lines. Three hours. Yeah, yeah, it was fantastic. But and yeah. then the then the uh, the other story was. Malcolm is um, being asked by his, and he's been keeping how smart he is yeah, yeah. from his family um, because he doesn't want to stand out. He has to be weird. Yeah, so, um, and, but the the math teacher yeah. is trying to do like like some something there. He has and, his special act he's going to do. Yeah, no, no, but I know she, yeah. but she, no, she ropes him into it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, because he doesn't want to do it yeah, because yeah. then it's like, it's like pulling off Batman's mask. People yeah, will yeah. see what his superpower is. Yeah, yeah. Right, and he's just this math genius. Yeah. And he sees that the thing that she's trying to do is nobody's liking it and he feels so sorry for her. Yeah. Um, because she's kind of like, you know, a bit ditzy, but yeah. sweet. Yeah. And he, um, and he gets up there and he does, yeah. you know, math magic. Yeah. You know, and, the best part is the family is there, yeah. like watching this. They had no idea, yeah. and they get in the car afterwards, right. and they're absolutely dead silent. They're all just sitting there, and I think finally it's the younger brother who goes, "Dad, is Malcolm a robot?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I think Brian Cranston goes, "No, he's just smart. Yeah. Really, really smart." <laughs> yeah. And I go, it was such a beautiful yeah, yeah. episode. And then they undercut it right away. Yeah, yeah. And they start something. Yeah, a fart joke. Yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. And then they undercut it right away. But I'm going, oh my God, this, there was the directing, writing, performances. It was so perfect. This didn't believe that. That was a tough it. one. They wrote the entirely exterior day episode that we had to shoot in November. 
So we were literally, we scheduled that. I always say we scheduled that like a German train. We had to, we had to like shots were numbered. This goes, this shot goes from 1110 to 1127. Mm. This shot goes from 1127 to, you know, and if you didn't make it, the sun was setting and you had to, so that was a big challenge. We had to have certain things we knew we'd shoot against walls that we could light to make them look like they were outside, but cause we had no cover of any kind on that episode. Yeah. So, but yeah, it was a good episode. That was terrific. The best thing about that Malcolm was I always call it the kitchen table writing and that kind of was in that in that ilk in that sense. And then what happened was season two, we got double banged in sweeps for an entire month. We had write eight they had to write eight sweeps episodes. Eight. Because we got wow. a two hour, a one hour time slot every week for sweeps. And so everything got big. Well, that's when we went to Vegas and we blew up the house. And I mean, we did so much giant stuff. Then then they had trouble winding it back after eight straight episodes of of massive yeah, over the top. Yeah. Over the top. And so I just thought Malcolm just became I love this. I have saying, what happened to the kitchen table stuff? It's harder to write. Because right. you know there's no gimmicks. Yeah. You yeah, know, yeah no, some of this, I also remember one, on some other moment not turning into a Malcolm retrospective because yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saving that for when you get the Lifetime Achievement oh, Award yeah, from the DGA. Yeah, yeah, thank yeah, you. They'll, hopefully they'll invite me to speak. Thank you. Yes. Um, yeah. the, um, but it was, this, it, was a, it was a cold open in Malcolm where the kids are, I think it's Malcolm, and I don't know if it's both brothers or the, the older brother, um, but they're on the couch and watching some insanely violent TV show, mm, yeah. you know, and you can't see what they're watching. You hear it, you know, yeah. gunshots and explosions and stuff. Yeah. And the mom comes in, you know, and the kids are sitting there just kind of like yeah, yeah. watching. And mom comes in and says, like, why are you watching this stuff? And and she changes the channel and you hear some sort of like light kid oh, yeah, yeah. kid show. And as soon as she puts on this like light level, like a Barney kind of fighting. show, they start fighting. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. like, you know, like, hey, that's my popcorn. No, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I remember this. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. Again, but that, that's, that's, that's real life, though. That's, yeah, that's real life. Yeah. Right, right. So that, that, but that's, that's the type of conceptual stuff that, the, you know, like yeah. you, you miss, uh, you know, somebody who's just like, Joke, 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 joke. Yeah. Kind of often, not always, but you know, can often miss those kind of things. As Jeff Ashraf says, most people have one good show, and they it's ripped from their lives. And that was Linwood's. Lin, that's Linwood's family, mm-hmm. and he is Malcolm. Linwood was the genius in that family, and he had to go to special class, and all those things were real. And when that pot, when he, I got sent that pilot, and it was like all Linwood. He never done single camera. He comes from multi-camera and he just knew it was so dark. It had to have pretty light. That's all he kept saying. And I kept saying, it's not that dark. It's kind of hilarious. But, you know, but but he knew it had to have beautiful light. And so we made sure that Victor Hammer shot it and uh, we made sure it had a beautiful light, you know, golden, washed with golden light. And But um, I, it's again, it's the darkness that under that supports the humanity of the comedy. Mm. That's what made Malcolm so great to me. Right. You know, when it got to be, I came back to do, I'll be honest, I came back to do, I did a movie and came back to do the season six opener. And so I watched the close of season five where literally Reese has lied about his age and he's fighting in Afghanistan. Um, uh, uh, Hal has gotten some kind of, en- been the scapegoat for some kind of Enron scan- style scandal at his work. And Lois has had a nervous breakdown and she's making um, pigs out of Clorox bottles, like thousands of them. And I looked at this and I went, what the fuck happened? <laughs> like, where's my family that I knew, that I knew and understood? So I came in, I saw the season six opener, which I'm dealing with all these same ideas. And I said, I went to Linwood and I said, Linwood, just so you know, 
I'm going to ground this to every single emotional idea I can find in this script, you know? And he goes, okay. <laughs> and then we, I just, cause I didn't understand. Like, I wasn't a family I recognized anymore. But that's not uncommon in television where it's like, there's this evolution of yeah. the family. Like, you know, I guess maybe it's less common in, in comedy, especially if you're dealing with the, the comfort food, you know, the macaroni yeah. and cheese where you want yeah. to come back to it. But that was, I'm sure, a slow, slow evolution. It, just, on that. it was, yeah, it was just the writer. Right. All right. So uh, one last question for you. Yeah. If, do you have any, anything that you've worked on where you go, oh, I wish I could redo that? Not because, I mean, you know, not necessarily that it was terrible or something like that. You just say, oh, you know what, I, I've changed or the material has changed or the world has changed. You know, I, I wish I could hit the redo button on that one particular thing. Could be a script, a project, whatever. I do. But I don't talk about it much. Um, let me see if I'm going to do this. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I was hired to come in and do uh, an episode of the reboot of Amazing Stories. Uh, and it was touted as the only, it was a very contentious series. Um, and everything went through multiple masters, including Mr. Spielberg. And um, I got the script that everybody said was the only script that everyone agreed on. And it was this sort of a haunted house boogeyman story with five 12 year old girls. And went through the entire process in Atlanta, well big, it was like I was there for two months, two or three months, you know? And it was a big thing, a big expensive hour of tele of streaming television. And a series of collisions took place where the writer was right by my hip for the 90% of the movie, she and I were high-fiving and uh, all this stuff. And But between that moment and rapping and uh, Mr. Spielberg changed his mind about the tone of the show. He wanted Amazing Stories to be more adults and he decreed no more kids. And so they were cutting other episodes to limit the kids who were written into them. He wanted a darker show, more grown. I don't know. I'd never had a conversation. And so... My episode was five 12 year old girls and it was, that's, that's who was in it. That's what it was about. It, it, but it was, I thought we'd really done some really rich, dark work. It had, uh, you know, an underbelly to it that was very emotional. Heard the girls being chased, you know, haunted by this boogeyman creature that's going to kill her in theory and consume her. And, um, but it just... Uh, ultimately, uh, it wasn't favored and they shelved it unfinished. And I always, I, that would, it was heartbreaking to me because of the kids and how much I invested in them. And I was really, it was late in my career. So I was deeply confused at how communication can be so flawed at how people can change their minds so late in the game and how $8 million can just be shelved so easily without a discussion about what can we do to make this more like the new vision of this. And it reflected badly on me, obviously. Um, so that's why I hesitated to talk about it. But it was a lot to recover from emotionally. Um, and it just crushed my spirit, you know. And so, but I don't, so I would want, <laughs> I realize the script no one, everyone, the script everyone agrees on is the one no one's read <laughs> carefully. 
The script you argue over is the one you read and you give notes and notes and notes. And I didn't do that math in my head. So I feel like I'm very much aligned with the showrunners and the writer on set. And we're all making the same movie. And that was out of sync with the system. And I got caught in the middle. And the and I just, I would love a redo on that. I would love a redo on the whole process. I'm doing these big uh, tonal dog and pony shows. I mean, it, I'm doing everything I do to make when I make pilots. I'm showing them everything I'm going to do. There were no cards hidden. And yet the result was, you know, I mean, it's the third world, first world problem. This is devastating. But devastating after investing so much. We all invest, writers, directors, we all invest so much creative heart into things we do. That to have it so... To return so badly, I don't say misunderstood. I don't even know. I, the whole thing is so mysterious to me. I, I, so that's a very honest answer. I'd love to redo that. I'd love to get. I would have loved to recut it. I would love to reshot something for it. I would love to do anything I could to make that make sense at that moment in the market. Whatever that market was, it was Stevens' image of himself or that show. And that show died a terrible, dismal death. You know, because it, it. No one watched that. I don't think so. Um, but that's why there's only five episodes. Mm. I was the sixth. Well, they, well, it's funny when you were talking about like the script everybody agrees on is the one that nobody's read. Um, I remember I used to do sales training like a hundred million years ago, and there was this principle that um, that if as a salesperson you're showing somebody a product and they don't have any questions, they don't want it. Right. Yeah. And, but, but the people arguing, it's like, why, why is it worth this? How come it doesn't do this? It's like, yeah, this, yeah. this one is so much better. That means that they're actually really interested in it. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting. I've, I've never kind of applied that, no, that idea. I realized to this. no one had bothered to study what was in those pages. Right. They all just said, oh, it's the only one everyone agrees on. And then I realized, well, that was the problem. And I didn't identify it. I couldn't see that. I didn't force them to engage. And honestly, uh, it changed. And I was pleasing the showrunners, and they were uh, they be and landed at some moment deeply out of sync with Steven. And that's why I said, I don't need to be a nice guy anymore. Like, I came into Monster High going, here's what's wrong. Whatever I wanted to rewrite, I rewrote. Writers aren't going to like hearing this, but there's no writer on set. I got to shape it every day, remembering every single day what happened on Amazing Stories. I said, no, this has to be great, and I'm going to be the one to make it that way because I'm the one who's going to, whose career is going to go down the toilet if this thing doesn't work. So I'm not going to stop until this thing is everything it can be, and I don't really care whose toes I step on. <laughs> and I end Writers Room Pro with that little quote. Um, <laughs> well, and on that happy, little, that happy little, little note. <laughs> but it was like, I got burned. I got deeply burned by a system that was, I mean, you know, you're talking about these to 8,000 pound gorillas in the room. And I was not in a conversation with any of them. Right. But, and so it was really unfortunate. I said, no, 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 that's, this can't happen again. I'm not trusting that the system has my back. Mm -hmm. In TV, you come and do an episode and, I'll be honest, the problem with this whole show, the original Amazing Stories had a writer's room. I never spoke to them. Mm -hmm. I wrote my first episode. I rewrote my second episode. I never spoke to the writer's room. McGarris, lovely man. I've, I'm friends with him. But I, they had a writer's room with Richard, what's his face from? Mathis. Richard Matheson was there. You know, I never spoke to them. I had no reason to. I was a writer-director coming in. The new Amazing Stories was structured like television uh -huh. with a writer's room and the edict of here's the script and do this script like an episode. And I got caught in the middle because I wasn't told this is your movie, make it what you want. I was 
kind of told it was a it was an episode. I love the collaboration process. I love when a writer and director are in such creative sync that it just becomes this joyful collaboration. That's really powerful to me. And I work for that very, I work, that's a bit, I realize that's so important to me, but it goes beyond that. I realize one of my big missions on every job, I don't know when this happened or when it, but it, along the 35 years, um, I'm here to build uh the, the crew and the company. I'm here to build a company as a team. And if I don't succeed in doing that, I have failed on this project. And it happens on every job. I, I can feel it when it happens. It's like even on an episode of Grace and Frankie this last like nine days, a, a grip will walk by and just touch my back as he passes by. And it's just gesture that they didn't have to do, but it's, it, it, and it happens. And then I was doing a, uh, Sons of Tucson episode I remember and there was I wanted to do this flashback that was my idea to this Christmas thing and and they said look the social workers here the flashback was an extra thing if we have time we'll do it and I really really wanted this flashback and so the art department said your Christmas set is it was a Christmas flashback to some performance thing that your set's waiting and so we had like 10 minutes and we walked with the social workers staring at us with this minor child walk in and the set was a giant roll of cotton batting it was sitting there on as a roll and i just fell to my knees and started tearing this cotton batting into into drifts of snow and i suddenly look over and the key grip is tearing cotton batting into and the cinematographer is doing it and every and i said oh my god they're mine I've won them. They they're on board. This they feel respected. They feel they feel um, they feel appreciated. They feel you know. I just that's so important to me, and that extends obviously to the writer partner. But the company needs to feel like what they're doing. They're we're all growing old doing this. You want to know that you're doing it with good people and that you're valued. And your your Gary Shandling said you know he'd take a good he'd take a good idea from anybody, mm -hmm. and I've always lived that way i said i don't have to have I, I will steal the best idea in the room absolutely i'd like to I'm, i think we're going to title this episode todd holland the commercial who loves people i you know yeah exactly please please <laughs> anyway Anyways, thank you so much sure thing i know so you you always get upset when i uh when i sign my emails to you warmly so now i just nope. you know like like super double warmly so super yeah i does that but it's, it's sincere it's like you're an like, easy person like, to uh like, sign off like warmly so anyway warmly warmly i warmly extend my warmest uh, oh, warmly. podcast goodbyes to you and handshaking is a filthy habit we shouldn't do it <laughs> <laughs> you're such a curmudgeon <laughs> just end on that thanks to todd for joining us make sure you tune in for our next interview with tv and film writer alvaro rodriguez until next time.